Well, it is, it is a tremendous blessing to be with you here tonight. And it is my sincere petition to the Lord that He will help us, that He will help you. Eloquence can draw a crowd, but cannot transform it. I would rather stammer throughout this entire sermon than preach well without the Spirit of God. Because only the Spirit of God can help you. Listen to the Word tonight. As stammering and stumbling as I might be, listen to the Word tonight. Because the Word is living and active. The Word can change you. The Word can change me. A man can lose a lot of things, even in the Christian life, but we must not lose hope that we can be more like Christ. The only way to sustain that hope is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ dwells in you. He does. I know like me, at times, some of you feel like giving up, that you'll never change. Or there's certain things that you just can't seem to overcome. You can and you will. But even until that time, while you're still struggling, know this. Your struggles are not stronger than His love for you. If I could give you anything, anything. If I could take for myself one prize from heaven, it would be to fully understand the unconditional love of God. I don't care how godly you are, when you look in the mirror intently, you are going to see so many flaws. I find that the only way even the greatest believer can have rest is to believe God when he says, I love thee. I love thee. And you can only sustain that kind of belief, not by looking in the mirror all the time, but by looking in the mirror of God's word. Believing what he says. He has Saved you. He will keep you. He is coming for you. And one day all this struggle will seem like a far off dream. So be encouraged because that's the purpose of this text. Now let's read verse 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. There is so much truth in these two verses. We're going to try to look at some things. But again, I don't want you just to look or hear. Believe them. Believe them. Let your mind dwell on these excellent things so that throughout the week, the Spirit of God have greater opportunity to work in your life. Well, let's look. First of all, it's been a while since we've been in 1 Thessalonians, so let's just take a look at the entire chapter. Paul, if you look in verse 1, what does he say to them? He has admonished them to walk in the teaching 
that they had received, the instruction that they had received from him, they were to walk in that instruction. And it was only in that way could they please the Lord. Now, it's the same with you and with me. You're not going to please the Lord because you follow some whim or fancy or imagination of your own mind or some strange doctrine that's been prophesied. You're going to be sure to be pleasing to the Lord as you walk in the instruction, that which has been written. You know, brother and sister in Christ, listen to me. Neither you or I spend sufficient time in the Word of God. If you wonder where your weakness is coming from, there's the source. We need to constantly hear, read, meditate upon this instruction. And we need to pray for power to be able to walk in this instruction. You know, we could be at least to a greater degree healed if we spent more time in the Word of God. You know that. Now, in this text, he also highlights three very practical, important points in the Christian life. One is uh, physical, moral, sexual purity. That we are to be a people that is innocent, unstained, not legalistic, not prudish, but beautiful in the sense of a of a purity. He's not just speaking against fornication or adultery. He's also speaking against things like sensuality or things that would enter in through our eyes. We're to avoid that because he's given us greater things. He also talks in this chapter about love. Love for the brethren. And in the end, that is the second greatest commandment, isn't it? To love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord your God with all your heart. Your neighbor is yourself. Your neighbor is your brother and sister in Christ. The true test of maturity is love for the brethren. For our brothers and sisters. And then he goes on from there and he talks about an expression of love. Which is we are to be diligent in working. In have a, having a productive and useful life. So that we might contribute to the body. And that is opposed to being uh, someone who is uh, slothful. And not only slothful, but meddlesome. The one thing we can take away from that is that most of us need to spend more time tending to our own garden. And one of the greatest ways that you can influence those who are weaker in the body is by being an example. By dealing with your own issues. By seeking to grow in conformity to Christ. And when they watch you, they may grow rather than you simply meddling in their life. So he talks about these three practical things. But then now we come to this teaching tonight. We hear about the second coming and the dead in Christ rising. And when you read this text, there's something that happens that shouldn't happen. We miss the point. You see, most people think, well... In the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is dealing with very practical matters in the Christian faith. But now he's going to leave that behind and he's going to take up a highly theological issue, the second coming. And that's not true. As a matter of fact, whenever the Bible, for the most part, is teaching on the second coming, the second coming is not the primary idea being communicated. You see, Paul is going to talk about another very practical matter and he's going to refer to the second coming only to help the believers work through that practical matter now what is the practical matter 
Well, here's the issue. It seems that the Thessalonians had received some sort of teaching. Either it came from within them or it came from without upon them. Some type of false teaching or false idea that, um, that those who had already died in Christ, that they were somehow going to be at a loss. And so what Paul is dealing with here is this issue. How are believers in Christ supposed to respond to the death of other believers in Christ prior to the second coming or their own death prior to the second coming? How should we look at the death of a believer? Now, they were disturbed to the point of grieving. They were grieving because they believed something bad had happened to those who had died before the second coming. Now, we really don't know what this false teaching was. We really don't. But there are two prominent ideas that I want you to think about. And then I'm going to give you my opinion as to what I think the most prominent idea is. One opinion is this, that they had come to believe that those who died before the second coming would be lost to death. Would just be lost. It's over. There's no hope. The other opinion is that it's not that extreme that somehow believers who had died prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ would miss out on this extraordinary event and the joys and the benefits of it and maybe be resurrected at a later date. Now, which one is true? We're really not for sure, but I am going to give you my opinion. I go with the first opinion. Probably that has more of my confidence. Why? Why do I believe he's talking about the fact that the belief that those who died prior to Christ, that they uh, were lost to death? Well, just look at verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, look what he's saying. He's saying you are grieving like those who have no hope after death. That sounds very, very extreme. Also, I want you to think about this. In 1 Corinthians 15, what is going on? They were denying the resurrection of the believer. So it's not strange that that teaching could have come over also into this area and some form of it reached these believers. Now, Paul is going to talk about the second coming. Why? In order to end their grieving. And here's something that I want you to see. Almost every time the Bible teaches about the second coming, it's to motivate us to hope and to motivate us to a certain type of ethic, a certain way of living. I'm coming again. Be careful. Be watchful. Don't be slothful. I'm coming again. Don't be in despair. You see, the second coming comes forth in the scriptures, not so that we can write a book about some date or time or exactly how everything is going to happen. When we look at it that way, we always run down a, a dead end street. But the second coming comes to us in order to give us hope. To give us hope. That our life has not even yet begun, we could say. But also to admonish us. Look, you better live for eternity. 
Look, I'm coming again, Jesus says, and my reward is with me. I will give to every man according to what is due him. I'm going to render unto each one of you. So when we hear about the second coming, don't try to always figure out the details. When, where, how, what. Think about this. He is coming. So I have hope. He is coming. And so I need to walk circumspectly. I need to walk as those who are not of this world. I need to walk as those who will one day meet their Lord and King. Alright? Now, there's something about this text before we really get into it that I really want you to see that most, most times we just completely miss. Because it just seems like the idea of the second coming just eclipses everything. And that's where our attention goes immediately. But what's really going on here? Well, there's a truth that I want you to see here that is absolutely extraordinary. And what is it? Love. You say, love, this is about the second coming. Well, here's what I want you to see. The Thessalonians were under some sort of persecution. Now, we don't know exactly exactly the degree or the type of persecution, but they were suffering. And there's something about suffering believers. Their eyes are turned upward. And when everything gets easy, what happens? Their eyes go downward. I saw this in Peru during the time of social unrest and the war with the Sendero Luminoso. The churches were filled. Believers would be together almost every night. But when that was done and the economy started growing again and things got easy, you didn't see the same type of fellowship. You didn't see the same type of view of eternity. Now, you and I live in one of the most comfortable places in the world. But at this moment... They did not. And so they were longing for the second coming. When people are persecuting you, you want out. They were longing for the second coming. But here's the extraordinary truth that I want you to see. That just amazes me. They could not bear the thought. They were grieving. Because they could not bear the thought of eternal bliss in heaven Without their other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how much they loved one another. Remember Paul talks about their love. They had an extraordinary love. And it was this extraordinary love that they had for one another. That I won't say conquered the Roman Empire. But what I will say. It validated the gospel that conquered the Roman Empire. This love that they had for one another was a cause for jaw-dropping amazement. I want to quote to you something that Tertullian says. That for the most part, when it's quoted, it's only quoted in part. But this is what he says, comparing Christians to pagans. Look, they say, look, the pagans say, how they love one another. How the believers love one another. For the pagans themselves hate one another. And look how these believers are ready to die for each other when the pagans are more ready to kill each other. You see, this was the difference. This was the difference. That's why a dear friend of mine one time was listening to some deacons talk about, uh, you know, well, there was a fight going on in the church and it nearly broke out in a fist fight. In fact, it may have. And some deacon stood up and said this. Brothers, we're Christians. 
We can't be pounding one another. Well, that's not a true statement. It would have been more true to say this. Brothers, if we're pounding one another, we're not Christians. You see that? Because one of the great marks, if not the greatest mark, aside from faith, is love. And that is why when we look at the the judgment of the sheep and the goats, what do we see? It's not that they were saved because the sheep loved the sheep. But the evidence that they were saved was that the sheep loved the sheep and cared for one another. Now, remember what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you you have love for one another. Brothers, we can't get around this. Sisters, we can't get around this. You just can't. I'm sorry. And if you know someone is in Christ, but because of some maybe immaturity in their doctrinal position, you find yourself angry with them, you need to repent of your sins. Or you find them not, as quite, not quite as sanctified as you, you must repent of your sins because it is ultimately Christ and faith in Christ that brings us together and unites us. Not some secondary doctrine or secondary ethic. Now, let's go on. He says... But in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. Now, the word want here, when we hear that, it's kind of superficial. You know, we think of of maybe just a, a want or a wish. But in this context, it carries a greater idea than something superficial or passive. In this context, the idea is that we see determination, that Paul is resolute. I am determined I'm determined. What is he determined? That they no longer be uninformed. And that's the way preachers should be. And to some degree, all of us. And pastors and evangelists. Our great desire when we stand in the pulpit is that believers not be uninformed. And so you see, we can't build a church by just coming up here and giving you a bunch of hoopla. A bunch of excitement. But we must inform you, inform you. Now, Paul was determined that the Thessalonians not live in ignorance with regard to the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. All right. Now, the word uninformed, let's look at that for a moment, because you really need to understand it. It comes from the Greek word agoneo. Ah is a negative particle meaning no or not. And then. Goneo is idea of gnosis or gnosko, which is, is I know or knowledge. It means no knowledge. It means to be ignorant. But you need to understand what the word ignorant means. Ignorant does not mean that someone lacks the mental capacity or faculty to learn. That is not what it means. It simply means they lack knowledge. They lack instruction. Now... The most intelligent person could be ignorant in some context. For example, you may have a brilliant mathematician, but with regard to history, he's ignorant. You may have a brilliant philosopher, theologian, but with regard to computers, he doesn't know how to turn it on. You see, so it's a lack of knowledge. Now, I want you to realize something. Look what Paul says here in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, literally ignorant, Kind of a strong word. 
Brethren, whenever Paul uses the word ignorant, addressing Christians, he always uses the word brethren. Now, why does he do that? Well, the sisters might say it's because it's the brethren who are ignorant. No, that's not the reason. Here's the reason. Paul wants to emphasize even the youngest believer, most immature believer, he wants to emphasize their equality with the apostle. And he wants to demonstrate his affection toward them. He is not trying to be condescending. He is not trying to be rude. He's not talking down. But what is he doing? He is speaking the truth in love. The truth is, you're ignorant. The love side of that is, you're my brother. You're my sister. And again, remember, ignorance is a strong word for us because we don't understand the meaning. It just simply means you lack information in this area. And so Paul's going to give them information. Now, I want you to look just for a moment. You, you can turn there if you want. Talking about speaking the truth in love. In Ephesians 4, 14, 15, we have a perfect example of this. And I want us to just, li- just listen. Paul says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. Now, look at this. How do we grow up into all aspects Even into the head, which is Christ. How do we grow up and become like Him? By speaking the truth in love. Each believer speaking the truth in love to other believers. But here we have to be very careful. Because you can be a proud believer. Speaking truth in not so much love. You can be a meddlesome believer. Thinking that God's called you to be the the whip of Jehovah. You see, you need to be very careful. You need to speak the truth in love. But you always need to be very discerning and very, very careful. And speak the word, not your own opinion. And also realize that you are not responsible for everything lacking in any other believer. God is. It's like when you have to tell your eldest son or your eldest daughter, you're in the room with all your children and the eldest rises up and starts correcting one of the younger ones, and you go, oh, stop it. I'm the dad. I'm in the room. You don't have to do that. If I don't see a problem, you don't see a problem. You see? So we need to be careful when we speak the truth in love, but it's absolutely necessary if we are going to grow to maturity. Now look at this also. He says, we are no longer to be children. How can you grow out of being a child into a mature adult? By speaking the truth in love and listening to preaching, mature believers, others who are speaking the truth in love to you. Then he says we shouldn't be tossed here and there by waves or carried about by every wind of doctrine. How can you avoid being carried away by every wind of doctrine? By listening to mature believers who prove themselves by love and patience, by listening to them when they open up the Scriptures, by listening to sound preaching, by studying the Word yourself, because every time you read the Word, God is speaking the truth in love. And then he says this, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, oftentimes 
A believer in his pride or her pride will not listen. And so what they do by their refusal to listen to others who speaking into their life, they pull themselves away and they isolate themselves. And when they do that, well, I don't know if you know how wolves hunt, but that's the way they hunt. Wolves don't attack an entire herd of caribou. They run those caribou until one breaks away. The lame, the crippled, the weak. And that's the one they go for. Now, when I say you shouldn't isolate yourself, I'm not saying at all that if you're a member of this church and you go become a member of another church, you're isolating yourself from us. No, that's not what I'm talking about. That's a cult. What I'm talking about is when you break away from other believers and you no longer want to listen to them. Now, sometimes, though, we realize that even believers talking to us can be wrong. So we need to be very discerning. We need to have a multitude of counselors. But if we're going to grow to maturity, if we're not going to be ignorant, we need one another. And guess what? The pastor preacher needs the members as much as the members need the pastor preacher. And sometimes the youngest in the flock may come to the oldest in the flock and point out somewhere where he's wrong. And he needs to listen. We all need to listen. We all need one another. Now, I want to bring up a few truths about biblical ignorance, about ignorance as we see it in the scriptures. First of all, with the new birth, we are given the capacity to know God. I want you to understand that. With the new birth, we are all given the necessary faculty, ability, we could say, to know God and to know His will. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Now this is a great new covenant promise. That every child of God will be taught of God. It doesn't mean that we're all great uh, Hebrew scholars or theologians, but it does mean that every believer has the capacity to know enough about God and His will to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God and a benefit to others. Now, let's just look really quick. Why does Jesus say it's written in the prophets? Well, it's written in the prophets because in Isaiah 54, 13, it says, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. Why is the well-being of the sons great? What's the reason? Because they're taught of the Lord. Listen to me. The mature, the older, listen to me. You must be taught of God for your well-being to be great. You must endeavor to study the Scriptures. Listen to me, young person. The only way your well-being is going to be great is through being taught of God, opening yourself up to the Scriptures. Not just the preaching, but the Scriptures themselves. Because it's only through your study of the Scripture you're going to know whether or not the preaching is right. Now, also in Jeremiah 31, 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Now, why am I saying this? Because I know that you can't be that much different from me. I know that I can neglect Scripture. I know that at times I'm not in the book enough. And, I, and you know that's a problem with you, don't you? The only way you're going to be strong is to be in the Word. To be in 
the word. Now, let me give you a little bit more encouragement. First, John five twenty, And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Why is he saying this? Because it seems like there was this group of prophets that came into the church. That were basically saying, we have this special insight into God. You don't. We have this special anointing that no one else has. Boy, we hear that a lot today, don't we? We have this special anointing. And so you little, naive, immature believers, you listen to us. We have this secret, special knowledge. And John says, no. He looks at the youngest believer in the flock and he says, the Son of God has come and has given you understanding. You see that? Also, we have this promise in 1 John 2.20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. In the face of these unbelievers who are, who are claiming to have some exclusive knowledge about God, some secret mystery about God, John comes back and looks at the flock and says, No, you've been anointed, every one of you. And what does that mean? The Holy Spirit indwells you. You've been regenerated. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And you know what's true. And what is true? Christ. Any person comes to you preaching any so-called prophet, the center of his message, if he is from God, will be Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, faith in him and working that out in love. That is why you are to blame if you do not study the scriptures because you've been given the capacity to know. Now, another truth, although you've been given the capacity to know the knowledge of God is, I know a lot of you have been college students, you know, when you put the book under your pillow and hope that it seeks through your head in the middle of the night, never worked, did it? Well, it doesn't work with the scriptures either. It's not a magical book. It's an infallible inspired book, but not a magical one. If you're going to have the knowledge of God, it must be acquired. You cannot be passive. Now, you say, well, what is the primary means of knowing God? What is the primary means? The scriptures. The scriptures, you know that. But you need to be told that again and again and again. Just like I need to be told that again and again and again. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent, brothers. Be diligent. The word not only has the idea of diligence, but has the idea of urgency. Urgency. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. If you do not accurately handle the word of truth, you can't, act, you can't live with accuracy. You cannot. Because you have no goal. You have no, no standard that is biblical and eternal and true. Now, another way, and I've already brought this up, so I'm not going to go back into it. When we think of how can we grow in the knowledge of God, we're always thinking the word, the word, the word. And that is true and that is primary. But I also want to bring up true fellowship. We don't see in the New Testament just lone wolves out there learning all kinds of things by themselves. Even though we should study alone by ourselves, come to conclusions by ourselves. At the same time, though, we need fellowship. Iron sharpening iron. Another way in which we grow in the knowledge of God, I am convinced, is through prayer. You know, so many people say, well, you know, I read that, I didn't understand it. I go, well, how much did you pray about it? 
Did you ask God? You see, prayer is another way in which we grow in the knowledge of God. Now, why is it that Paul... This is the thing I want to look at. Why is it that Paul is so adamant, so resolved to put an end to their ignorance? It's because ignorance is extremely dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. When I was working on electricity in my house, I was constantly calling Brother John Allen. Why? You work on electricity, it's really dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. That's why I was shocked several times. You see, the lack of knowledge can be dangerous. Now, I want to give you three words, and they're important. I'm not just saying them because they really sound uh, extraordinary. But I want to give you three words on which you think about them. One is orthodoxy, the other is doxology, and the other is praxis. Now, orthodoxy. You say, what is orthodoxy? Did you ever go to an orthodontist? What does orthodontist mean? You, you may want to figure that out before you actually walk in the office. What is an orthodontist? Ortho in Greek means straight. What does an orthodontist do? He straightens your teeth. Okay? So what does orthodoxy mean? Well, doxy comes from the Greek word doxo, which in this context means opinion. So what is orthodoxy? It's a straight opinion. A right opinion, a sound opinion, can mean a sound, sound doctrine, sound thinking. That's foundational to everything else. Now, what's doxology? Well, doxa in this case refers to glory, the idea of worship. And so it's worship. How can we worship God in a way that is pleasing to God? Only if we have correct doctrine. Sound doctrine will lead, at least it's foundational, to sound and true worship. And God is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and truth. And as we know from Leviticus 10 and the two sons of Aaron, worshiping God in a wrong way can be rather dangerous. And so we have doxology leads to, orthodoxy leads to doxology, pure and true. And then we get the word praxis. From the Greek word praktin, which means to practice, to do. The Christian life is not just orthodoxy and it's not just worship. But it's actually doing, active. You're actually doing something. But how can you know what to do if you don't have the knowledge of what is right? And that's why all these things kind of work together. Now, in the case of the Thessalonians. Their lack of knowledge led to unnecessary grieving and because of that a poor testimony among the pagans. But in other places in scripture a lack of knowledge can lead to something far more detrimental. Let me give you a few verses. Hosea 4:6. I believe Anthony quoted this on Sunday. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Yes, my people. My people. You see just because you're his People doesn't necessarily mean that you're just living in a secure place. In one sense, it does. But I want you to know something. Your lack of knowledge can get you into a whole bunch of danger. Why do we constantly teach our children? If we don't teach our children, they're still our children. But we teach our children. Why? So they don't kill themselves. So they don't mess up their lives. 
My people are destroyed, he says, for a lack of knowledge. And then in Isaiah 5.13, he says, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Now you say, oh, well, exile for their lack of knowledge. Do you know what exile was? Slavery. The cruelest forms. Murder. Rape. Pillage. A suffering like nothing you and I could ever even understand. It was having a hook poked through your lip or your nose and being led off to a foreign land naked. You don't think a lack of knowledge is dangerous? It's extremely dangerous. Nineveh didn't know their left hand from their right hand. It almost led to their absolute destruction and a few decades later it did. You see that? This is... Very, very important. Romans 10.3 For not knowing, literally ignorant, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. What does it mean? It says, in their ignorance, they sought to save themselves and did not believe upon God's saving person and work and they were eternally lost. Ignorance. And then listen to this, 2 Corinthians 2.11. So that no advantage would be taken of us, for we are not ignorant, same word, of His schemes. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of His schemes. What is one of the ways that you can avoid being taken advantage of by the great enemy of the Christian faith? By not being ignorant. So many people are led astray even by doctrines of demons. Why? Because their lack of true knowledge in the Word of God. Listen, if someone comes here with great piety, that doesn't mean they're from God. If someone comes here with great miracle, it doesn't mean they're from God. If someone comes here with just an exuberant, zealous personality that makes you think that you don't even love God, it doesn't mean they're from God. The only way for you to be able to truly figure that out is to know what God's word says, to know God's word. Now, ignorance also leads to an unbiblical lifestyle, which leads to a poor testimony. Now, you and I must be distinct from the world. You know that we must be different. There needs to be separation between the believer and the unbelieving world. We know that. But if we lack the knowledge of the scriptures, we will not be able to maintain or even know what that distinction is without falling into great extremes. And what are those extremes? Oftentimes people will say, we need to be different from the world. But then they run off with their own opinion of what it means to be different from the world. And it usually leads to two things that are total extremes and both dangerous. And what are they? One extreme is conformity to the world. They don't know what God has said. They don't know those things that displease God. They don't know His commandments. They don't know His nature. And so they, the world has their ear and they form their Christianity based upon the carnal mind, their own and the voices of others. You see that? That's one extreme. And it's poor testimony. The other extreme is what? Christian fanaticism. Christian fanaticism. When, because of their so-called desire to be separate from the world, 
Christians began to live in an un- doing unusual, strange things, oftentimes very severe things, that also leads to a poor testimony among unbelievers. And basically it's this. The person who is the fanatic, they do harm to the church and they do harm to the unbelieving world. In what way? To the church, they lay burdens on other believers that Jesus Christ never laid upon them. You see that? Making rules Jesus never made. And burdening, like the Pharisees burdened God's people in the time of Jesus, burdening them with rules that Jesus never gave them. But also, the fanatic is dangerous for the unbeliever. Why? Because the fanatic puts obstacles in front of the believer, of the unbeliever. So that the unbeliever stumbles at Christianity before he ever gets a chance to stumble at the gospel. The only thing the unbeliever should stumble at is the gospel we proclaim. Do you see that? But oftentimes if we lay the gospel and then a whole bunch of rules and a whole bunch of nuances and all kinds of different things, they stumble and say that's crazy and they never stumble at the thing that they should stumble at. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why in this church we may be different in many different ways and want to have different expressions at times. But let me tell you something. It cannot be tolerated. The thing that we must proclaim is Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And that our hope and the hope of the world is found in that. Not in some little quirk or nuance that we might have. Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this also. Oftentimes, oftentimes, we see ignorance as a disability. And we see the ignorant person... As a victim. Is that true? We don't look at it so much as a sin. They don't know something. It's a disability. They're a victim to their lack of knowledge. But the Bible never sees it that way. Now look, all of us are born into Christianity. As infants. As immature. Capable of doing some extraordinarily ridiculous things. But in the scriptures, none of us are supposed to stay that way. Our ignorance of the things of God is gradually to be replaced by the true knowledge of God. And if it is not, the Bible lays the blame on our shoulders. Why? Because we have been given the faculty to know him and to know His will. Again, it doesn't, you know, I've known in my life some extraordinary minds. I've said about some men that they've got more knowledge of God in their finger than I have in my whole body. And that's true. And, And they can seem to grasp concepts that I can't even begin to understand. I'm not saying that all believers walk on the same level with regard to knowledge and insight. But what I am saying is that all believers have the faculty to know enough about God and His will to live in the most beautiful fashion. The most glorious and holy way. Now, I want to read you some texts that show you that 
ignorance is laid, or the blame is laid on us. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, he says, Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. They had no knowledge of God. He doesn't say you're a victim. Oh, poor person, come to me and I'll help you. He says, no, you should know better. You should know better. Now, of course, we have to be careful, especially with new believers in Christ. But there comes a point when you need to say to a believer, look, you should really know better. You should. Listen to Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. You see that? He's not cutting them any slack, is he? He's saying, look, by now, you should be a teacher. You should be eating meat. You should be teaching. But you're still a babe who can only Bear with milk. Now, parents, don't we say that sometimes to our children, possibly in a different form? You're old enough now. You ought to understand. Well, physician, heal thyself. After some years in the faith, we should not be swallowed up and driven by ignorance. But we should be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you all have the capacity for it. And you're all responsible for it. Now, Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Now, I used to have a lot of trouble with this text when I was a young believer. I said, Lord, they just didn't understand it. They're judged because they listened to it and they just didn't understand it. We need to understand the context. We need to understand the word itself. The idea is more, they did not regard it as important enough to investigate it. And judgment came. There's a song we sing, you know, that these are words of life. These are words of life. That as some of the old preachers used to say, the dust of this book is gold. Now, I don't I don't want to make you sad. I don't want to heap condemnation on you. I don't want to scold you. I want you to be. I want you to be happy in the Lord. I want you to be full of expectation for what he's going to do. But for him to do what he's going to do, sometimes you need to hear what I'm telling you. You are responsible to study the word of God. You are. And for our ignorance and the fundamentals of the faith, after a while, there's just really no excuse for it. But isn't it wonderful? The knowledge that all of us, all of us, can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the promises that are given to the apostles are given to us. Isn't that wonderful? Now, he says, in this text, he says... um, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. It's a present tense participle about those who are sleeping is what it says. Now, I want you to understand something. Sometimes people say that this is a uniquely Christian statement. It's not. This same word sleep was used by Jews and pagans to describe death. 
But what we need to understand is it only finds its true and fullest meaning in the Christian faith. And one of the things I want you to see that is so important, okay? I would never want someone that you love to die in your arms. I would never want you to have to witness the death of many people. Although, in that there is benefit. There is some benefit to being around death at times. Because it makes us see that we are mortal. It makes us see that this is the great enemy of man. And this also makes us see the power of the gospel because only in the gospel of Jesus Christ is death turned into sleep. You see, what you need to understand is death is the great conqueror that enslaves all thinking men with fear. I say thinking men because basically our culture is not a thinking culture. It doesn't contemplate its mortality. But thinking men are enslaved by the fear of death. Death is the end of all things. Death is the great destroyer. Death is the beginning of rot and decay. But in Jesus Christ, death is sleep. Restful and temporary. And that's amazing. That the greatest enemy, the greatest, greater than Leviathan. Remember Job said, stretch forth your hand, touch Leviathan. You'll never forget it if you do. There's one greater than Leviathan. Death. Because even Leviathan is subject to death. But Jesus, can he tame Leviathan? Leviathan is his pet. Can he tame death? He turned it into sleep. Now, because of this text, there are some religious organizations that claim something called soul sleep. And I want to inform you about that. This belief that once someone dies... Uh, their body goes into the ground and also their soul somehow remains there asleep. And they're not awakened again until the resurrection. That's not what this text is teaching and that's not what Paul means by sleep. You say, well, how do you know that? Because the law of non-contradiction. One of the greatest and most important things you can learn about studying the Scripture is one doctrine or one verse is not going to contradict the other. There is perfect harmony in the Word of God because in fact it is perfect. So let's look at some text. Philippians 1, and 23. Paul says, But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know how to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. So for Paul, to depart from the body was to be with Christ. It wasn't to be asleep in the ground. Also in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 9, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. Here again we see to be in the body is to be in a sense away from the Lord, to be out to depart, to go, is to be with the Lord. Those are clear texts that when someone dies, the saint's body goes to the ground, but his soul goes to God, where it is kept. Now, I want you to look here at, uh, and again, I've, I've got too much information here and I'm probably going on too long, but let's just bear with it. It's cold outside. It's better to be in here where it's warm, so let's just keep going. Um, he says, 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Grieve. Do you know there are pictures within Catholicism and I'm not trying in any way to to say it's correct or anything, but I also don't want it to be misunderstood. You'll see pictures and even statues of a so-called saint holding up a skull. And you'll say, boy, is that morbid. And in a sense, yes, it is. But please understand what's trying to be communicated. It is serious, solemn, wise, godly men contemplating their mortality. Knowing that this life on this planet is extremely short. And I don't say any of us should do that, unless maybe you're in medical school or something. But sometimes you just need to sit down and you just need to think there will be an end. There will be a judgment. There will be a time when this world passes away. And in a sense, it's a cause for grief. And they were grieving. Means to be made sorrowful or even to be thrown into sorrow. They were grieving. Now, I want to say something about this grieving. Uh, Say a couple of things. First of all, I want you to understand that there are not only sinful actions and sinful attitudes, but there are also sinful emotions. Now, it's not always wrong to grieve. It's not always wrong to fear. It's not always wrong to be angry. But these things become sin when they contradict God's word and when they come forth from From what? Ignorance, disobedience, or a lack of faith. I want to look at all three of these just for a second. First of all, ignorance. We see that here in our text. The Thessalonians were grieving in a manner that was not pleasing to God because they were grieving because of their ignorance with regard to the plan and promises of God. Do you see that? Their grieving was not biblical. And it is a result of a lack of knowledge. Now, there's another type of grief. There's another type of, of this, and it's disobedience. When emotions come forth, disobedience. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. When a Christian is angry, it's not always sin. But the Bible is clear That when a Christian allows sin to take up residence in their heart, to get a foothold, then they are in disobedience. Because it says, be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so when you allow anger to reside in your heart, it is emotion flowing from disobedience. You're just being disobedient. And then there's the emotions that flow from unbelief. From unbelief. And, and this is sometimes, in my opinion, the most pathetic. And the one that speaks harshly against God. When I hear believers say things like this. I think God has forsaken me. Or I don't think God will help me. That's unbelief. You know that. With regard to direct promises of God, that's unbelief. But also, I want you to see something. Belief, especially this kind, is casting aspersions upon God. 
It is attacking the very character of God. Sometimes we throw a pity party. Well, I don't think God will help me. Do you know what you're saying? God is a liar. Because God said he would help you. Well, I don't think God can use me. Again, I know you may be wanting to draw pity, but actually you're just lying about God. You're just lying. And you need to stop it. And that's why, Christian, understand me, a great deal of wisdom is required when you're, when you're counseling someone, discipling someone. Sometimes they need you to sit there and just be quiet. Sometimes they need an arm around them. Sometimes they need to hear gentle words of comfort. And sometimes they need to just hear, look, that's sin. It's just flat out sin. And you need to stop doing it. Do you understand me? But it takes a discerning heart trained in the Scriptures and in the practice of Scripture to do that. Be very cautious. Now, I want to give us a word of caution, though, against super spirituality. This is the first time I've preached here in like six months, so the next sermon will be shorter. But a caution against super spirituality. It is not always, it's not always unbiblical or inappropriate to grieve. As a matter of fact, it's inappropriate if you do not grieve. I tell you something, I, personally, because I'm probably under-spiritual, I can't stand super-spirituality. And the whole super-spirituality, why are you grieving? They're a believer in Christ. Why am I grieving? Because God says that even life on this planet is precious, and I'm not going to see them for a long time. Why am I grieving? Well, because they were young, and I had ideas of maybe that there would be more that they could do in the name of Christ. You see, it's not wrong to grieve. What's wrong is grieving without hope or expectation. Don't you believe they're going to rise? Yes, I believe they're going to rise. But still, I hurt. I miss them. So, so don't be super spiritual and walk around and tell people at funerals they're a believer, so put away your tears. Tell them cry. But never lose hope. There is a resurrection. You will be with them again. Let me give you some biblical texts for that. Ecclesiastes 3, 4. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Yes, even for Baptist, there's a time to dance. You see that? I, I know that we all are different with regard to how we express emotion. But don't be just a wet rag of no feeling and no passion. Don't be that way. We shouldn't be flamboyant, of course, but there's a time for everything, believers. One day I'm going to teach on this. There is a time for being solemn and a time to laugh. Love that, that poem by Michael Card. The Nazarene, talking about Jesus, the Nazarene could hunger and the Nazarene could cry and he could laugh with all the fullness of his heart. And those who hardly knew him and those who knew him well could see the contradiction from the start. They just couldn't put him in a box. Sometimes he was too serious and sometimes he just laughed too hard. You see, there's a time for everything. Paul says in Philippians, I mean, you're not going to be much more spiritual than Paul. Paul said in Philippians 2.27, For indeed he, Epaphroditus, 
was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. I could see people today going to Paul and say, Paul, what's your problem? Sorrow upon sorrow. Don't you believe in the resurrection? Yeah, I do. I still would have had sorrow upon sorrow if my brother had left me. I needed him. It was a comfort to me. Well, isn't God your comfort? Yes, God's my comfort. But I so need my brothers. I'm so frail. And I so like them to be with me and me with them. You see? All right. Then he says in this text. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. As do the rest who have no hope. Now. Just look at that word rest as the rest Loipoi, as the remainder. Do you realize what he's saying? He's dividing all of humanity in two groups. This is amazing. You don't talk about simplicity and power. He's dividing all of humanity in two groups. Those in Christ, those outside of Christ, those who have hope in the face of death, and those who have no hope whatsoever in the face of death. No hope. None. Think about that. Just two groups of people on the planet. What does it mean, no hope? I've put here, they can have no reasonable, confident expectation beyond death. You know, a lot of you are a lot younger than me. Well, let me tell you something. It's an amazing thing when you get to be my age. 53. You know what? what's amazing about it? Is you get to see heroes, sports heroes, the wealthiest people on the planet, the movie star, the great singer, the beautiful, the handsome. All these people when I was 20, when I was 16, that were literally the talk of the world. In their beauty, their strength, their wealth. And now, all these years have gone by. And you go look those people up on the internet. And I'm not trying to be harsh. But you thank God that He redeemed thee. Because you see, I'm 53. I'm probably not going to get stronger. And I'm most certainly not going to get better looking. I'm 53. I'm headed down the hill. Faster than I would probably like to go. So what would it be like to be 53? And know that all my strength. Well I never had any beauty. But all my strength and everything else. Is behind me. What do I got to look forward to? A A nursing home? But you see. When my life. And your life. Comes to an end. It's the beginning. When the secular man says. The strong green leaf has withered and browned. Crumble it and cast it to the wind for it is no more. We say, put out the candle because the lights come. Put out the candle. The light is here. Oh, brothers, this is a wonderful thing. But Paul says these people have no reasonable, confident expectation beyond death. You know why? I'm going to give you one of the saddest descriptions of a human in the Bible. In Psalms 
17, 14. They are men of this world whose portion is in this life. They are men of this world. Their portion, everything they're going to get is in this life. And then that's it. That's it. Is that some of you? Is that some of you? That all you can think about is now, 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 this world, this world, this world. Oh, I pity you. I pity you. I pity you. You're never going to be as rich, as handsome, as wealthy, and you're certainly not going to have as many wives as Solomon. And yet having done everything he did, being the number one in every category, he said all is vanity. All is vanity. Now, I want to just give you some declarations here because prior to Christianity, hopelessness was, to sum up the pagan world, it was hopelessness. They'd given up on everything. They'd given up on their religions, on their philosophies, on everything. Listen to some quotes. Aeschylus, he says, Of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Theocritus, Hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. Catullus, Suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night Lucretius, no one awakes and rises who has once been overtaken by the chilling end of death. And now listen to this. Now think about this. What is Paul saying about the Thessalonians? That they are grieving, just like the pagan world. And the idea is that maybe they will never see their loved ones again. Do you see that? That's what he's saying, isn't it? Well, listen to this inscription that was written on a sepulcher in the city of Thessalonica. Okay? Now, if it's on a sepulcher, it was probably a pretty rich and important man. Listen to what's written there and think of it in the context of the problem that the Thessalonians had. This is what was written. After death, there is no revival. After the grave, no meeting of those who have loved each other on the earth. What was going on here? Maybe the Thessalonians were listening to their culture, listening to men, and not listening to God. That was the attitude and the idea of the pagan world. Not just that there's no hope after death, there's no love. You've lost everything. Anything precious to you, relationship, whatever, it's gone. A dear friend of mine, dear friend of Kevin's, very wise man down in South Carolina. He had uh, a large, uh, I don't know, you wouldn't call it an orchard, but this huge thing, territory of pine trees that he was going to sell all of it for his retirement. And one of those big storms came through South Carolina and destroyed it all. And he said he was walking through there and just grumbling, just grumbling, just, just angry, almost angry at God. And grumbling and letting his, you know, his speech get out from him. And there was a friend walking with him who was a fellow Christian. And finally, I guess the friend had enough. He just grabbed him by the shoulder and spun him around and said, Listen to me, you didn't lose anything here today that could hug you back. Now think about that. You didn't lose anything that could hug you back. Relationships. And to think that all our relationships would end with death when it's just 
For the believer, all our relationships begin, begin with death. Can you imagine husbands and wives, parents and children, a relationship with each other where there's no sin? Even you newlyweds have discovered it's difficult (laughs) to be married at times. You see? Can you imagine being with your wife? No sin. Being with your sons and daughters, hopefully, if they're converted. No sin. Amazing, isn't it? Now, I want to say something here that's so important. I want to ask you, do you have a hope? And is it reasonable? Do you have a hope in the face of death? Do you? If you say yes, let me challenge that remark with something that's very clear in the Scriptures. There is always in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, a direct relationship between hope and God and Christ. There, there always is. Let me give you an example. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 that we studied a few months ago, the pagans were referred to as those who do not know God. Here they're referred to as those who have no hope. Why do they have no hope? Because they do not know God. And we're not talking about just an intellectual knowledge. We're talking relationally. They have no relationship with God. And so they have no hope. Then listen to Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There we see the Trinity. Of what I was talking about. Christ, God, hope. Without God, you have no hope. Without Christ, you have no God. That's why everything in our life hinges upon this person. That's why when I'm talking to an atheist or something, I don't talk about Genesis or other things. All I do is go right for the heart of the matter. Who was Jesus of Nazareth? Because that's where it all begins and ends for us. Without Christ, there is no God. Without God, there is no hope. And if you think there is, you're a fool. You're just a fool. I plead with you. If you do not have a confident expectation in Jesus Christ, if you're not holding on to the one who overcame death, you have no hope. You have nothing. But you may be the weakest, most pitiful, and yet if you hope in Him, you have an anchor. Within the veil. A savior. Who is great. Now. I'm just going to rush through this last part here. Look at verse 14. We won't tarry on it very long. But listen to what it says. For if we believe that Jesus died. Well I tell you what brothers and sisters. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to take that up next week. So I want to end with this. I. Listen to me. I'm not going to assume that it's right with your soul, especially you young people. Please. Listen to me. Do you even have the idea? Have you read enough poetry? Have you thought long enough to to realize the extreme statement? Have no hope. Have no hope. In Dante's Inferno, which is not very good theology, but it does have some good sayings in it. In Dante's Inferno, what does it say written over the doors of hell that the people supposedly see when they're coming up to the gates of hell? It says, abandon all hope, ye who pass through these gates. 
Abandon all hope. Tonight, abandon all hope of being able to face death and judgment if you have not Jesus Christ. Abandon all hope. And if you want to be saved, if you want such security, if you want peace, then do this. Abandon all hope in everything, especially self, and cast yourself upon Jesus Christ. Cast yourself upon Christ, Christ alone, Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Christ and Christ alone. There's only one command to open the door of glory. And it is I believe in Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Therefore, open up ye ancient gates. You see that? Don't tarry. Don't wait too long. Don't think that there's another minute or hour or day coming to you. Trust in Christ. Don't think you're too old. Don't think you're too young. Don't think you're too far away or too close. Judas kissed heaven's door and went straight to hell. That's how close you can get to Jesus and still be damned. Trust in Christ. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for Your people. Oh Lord, bless them, bless them, bless them. Bless them, Lord. Bless them. With a greater hunger for You through the Word and prayer, through fellowship. With greater conformity. And Lord, with greater hope. I wish for them hope, Lord. I pray for them hope. Where hope dieth, all things wither. Hope that you who began a good work will finish it. Hope that you who called them will come again for them. Lord, your blessing be upon your people. In Jesus' name.